the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, embarrassed astrophysicists hide for 50 years the discovery that the only exception to the galactic speed of light speed limit is a lime green Mazda RX-7 blasting Wang Chung's Everybody Have Fun Tonight on Interstate 20, halfway between Monroe and Shreveport, Louisiana. Now the secret is out, but understandably, nobody wants to do that anyway. Plus, we continue with a complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have Wen Spencer. She is talking about the reissue of the first book in her Elfholm saga, with a great new cover by Don Mates, by the way, the uh, the painter of the Captain Morgan rum bottle. That book is the exceptionally fun tinker, like I said, science fiction, urban fantasy blend, I guess it, you would call it. And we will talk to Wynn about all things Elf Home and Tinker. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now, here's the news. Hey, there's some great free nonfiction up this month on the Bain.com website. Up now is a really fun piece on the odd reactions to humanity suddenly discovering how to harness a new fundamental force of nature after World War II. That article is Atomic Follies by Jim Bell. The Atomic Age, with the success of the Manhattan Project and the dropping of the bomb on Japan, atomic power leapt off the pages of the science fiction magazines and into reality. In the post-war boom years, it seemed all but inevitable that soon all the world's energy problems would be solved through the power of the atom. Futurists speculated on atomic cars, atomic trains, atomic ray guns, and more. But little of this came to pass. In this month's nonfiction essay, nuclear engineer Jim Bell traces the history of some of these atomic follies. Atomic Follies by Jim Bell is now available to read for free at Bain.com and will always be available until the end of the Atomic Age and beyond in the free ebook download, Free Nonfiction 2018. It's a great piece with lots of cool retro images of things people thought might be that Jim has dug up. So check that out. I want to welcome Wynn Spencer to the podcast. Hello again, Wynn. Hi, Tony. Thank you for having me here today. John W. Campbell Award winner, Wynn Spencer, resides in Paradise in Hilo, Hawaii. It is Hilo, right? No, it's Hilo. In Hilo, Hawaii, with two volcanoes overlooking her home. Active volcanoes. Wynn was just talking about some of the, um, some of the, the lava that's, uh, that hasn't gotten to her. Um, maybe you should tell, let's tell the listeners a little of what we just talked about, if you don't mind, Wen. Um Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm in Hilo, which is on the Big Island. Um, it's actually called Hawaii, but that gets really confusing. Um, and we actually have five volcanoes, three of which are active. Um, one of them really active in May. Started up these cracks and fissures, and it's kind of expected because it's erupted there several times in the last hundred years. So it wasn't totally out of the blue, but um, they say it's something like three or four cubic miles of material flowed out of these fissures and went out down to the sea. There was only a small part of the island affected. So this area was about 15 miles from me. I wasn't affected personally, except for the earthquakes we had. Uh, We had one that was 6.9, and a lot of follows up to that. And it was kind of scary for that part, but that was only like two or three days of earthquakes that I could feel. Um, up at the 
um, Kilauea volcano caldera, they recorded as many as 500 in one day. Did you lose any China or anything like that? I didn't personally. I've heard other people had things fall over. We had things fall over, but nothing actually broke. Uh, I had these little Pokemon bounced on top of my flat screen TV, and they all went. And I was really afraid that the flat screen TV was going to go. And I'm sitting in my office, and I'm watching the whole house sway because my house is on piers. So it's very mobile in earthquakes. Mm-hmm. So it, it was really actually kind of scary. I thought I just brushed it off, but... I can look back now at my productivity, and it's like, <clears throat> I got nothing done three or four days that we were getting earthquakes. And you also rattled me. just had a, um, what do they call them, typhoon hit. <laughs> oh, yeah, we had the hurricane a few weeks ago. Um, hurricane Lane hit us, not full on. Um, it actually was kind of a glancing blow. So we got five feet of water over about 72 hours. Um, but we normally get about 100 inches of rain uh, a year, so we have really good drainage. So only part of the town got flooded. And I'm up way up on a hill, so it didn't affect me. Uh, and then we had a, another hurricane right on the heels of it, um, but luckily, it went north. That was Olivia. Yeah. Have you? Has this affected your riding in any way, or is it just part of the deal of living there? Um, the hurricanes, no, because it's all just part of living here. The whole volcano thing, at least the first week and a half, two weeks, because it was an ongoing thing of first. It was just reports of cracks, and then, oh, lava's flowing, and then, oh, a lot of lava flowing, and then it was 500 houses have been wiped out. And then they started doing this, okay, all the lava has drained out of the volcano. They used to be able to stand on the edge of the caldera and look down into the lake and see lava just spouting up. And it, it was all gone. And they were like, well, if it goes the whole way down to the water level, then the water will hit, the, which is normally kept out of the chamber because of the heat and pressure of the lava. If it can get into the chamber because there's no longer any lava there, it could explode. And we really don't know what that will entail. And so they were like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then it did explode, but it was kind of like a burp. Yeah, not no giant clouds of deadly steam that killed you like a lobster. Yeah, um, it went up a couple thousand feet. The big thing was if it went, the ash and smoke went up high enough, you would enter the jet stream, and the jet stream would bring it back and dump it on the town. If it only went up a couple thousand feet, the trade winds would push it away from town. If it got high enough, it would come down on us. And the problem with volcanic ash is once it gets wet, it becomes concrete. And we're in a tropical rainforest. We get 100 inches of rain. It would get wet, definitely. There's no way around it. So, you know, if you get too much on the roof, the houses collapse. So, yeah, the first two weeks of May were really quite disturbing. <laughs> it was like, da-da-da-da-da. No, I'll worry about it when it happens. Uh, actually, when I look back, I was really rattled by the whole thing. <laughs> Do you think any of this will work into, uh, I don't know if you put, I can't think of any elf home stories that you've put volcanic activity into, but maybe you have. Um, 
I could if I changed locales, but it would have to be from an elf point of view on another part of the world because Pittsburgh is so in a very geologically stable area. Yeah. yeah. Well, the the big uh, shift is is quakey enough, <laughs> I guess the the shift time. Um, well, let me let's continue. Um, so, uh, when is the creator of the Elf Home series and the uh, series opener, Tinker, won the 2003 Sapphire Award for Best Science Fiction Romance and was a finalist for the Romantic Time Reviewer's Choice Award for Fantasy Novel? Her books also include Wolf Who Rules, um, sequel to Tinker, which was chosen as a top pick by Romantic Times. Other Bane books include Elf Home and Wood Sprites. Those are in the Elf Home series. And um, also uh, Project Elf Home, which is, um, I think that's the last Elf Home book we've, we've had so far, right? So far. And Endless See? Blue. Other books include Endless Blue and uh, Eight Million Gods, which is a book I love. Um, and uh, what we want to talk about at the moment is that Bain is putting out a new trade paperback edition with, with new art of um, Win Spencer's Tinker. And that is out right now at booksellers everywhere. Has it been, it's never had this trade paperback treatment before though, I don't think. Oh no, not the trade paperback now. And this cover is um, a Don Mates cover, I believe. Yes, it rocks. I really love it. It's great, isn't it? And Don Mates is, is the guy that, that does Captain Morgan, by the way, for that created Captain Morgan for the uh, rum. So uh, <laughs> he's got a great a great version of Tinker on the cover here. Yes, I think it's great. Maybe we should talk about the genesis of the series. You have a new introductory essay, uh, I believe it's mm-hmm. new. And uh, you talk about growing up in Pittsburgh, outside of Pittsburgh, and um, sort of the the way it all sort of came to you over time. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Yeah. Um, basically, uh, I grew up in a in an area that was very poor. Um, at least my family was poor. Um, it had been a very good farming area, but as shift from small farms to big farms happened. Um, and a lot of personal family um, tragedy. My grandfather died, my great-grandfather died when my grandmother was only like 11 or 12. And when her mom remarried, her father had left her the farm. So she said, well, the farm is yours and left my grandmother, who was only like 12, there alone, and moved away. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. A 12-year-old. Yeah. Um, and she was afraid of the dark, and the house had no electricity. Um, and then she married when she was 19, and they had no kids. And my dad was the youngest. And when my dad was eight, his father died. And my dad still lives on the farm that he was born on. And that's where I grew up. And with all this personal um, tragedy and the fact that the whole economy was shifting away from small farming, the farm was basically left standing without being farmed, so it was slowly turning into wilderness. Uh, When I was young, it was still kind of field-like that you could maybe um, farm on, but gradually all the scrub trees took over, and I kind of saw what would happen to the outer edges of Pittsburgh when it got sent to Elfhome, the whole gradually turning into forest. The Most of the land is forest now. Uh, I barely can recognize it when I go and see it. But there was also a lot of odd things sitting around that I always could never figure out what exactly they were, because there was a lot of old-fashioned farming equipment that I'd never seen in use. Most of it was horse-drawn, 
And uh, some of it was there was also oil wells on the farm at one point, and the derricks had been torn down. But pieces of the oil drilling equipment, which was, you know, basically 1903, 1910, 1920, that era. So that was very archaic kind of equipment and machinery and stuff. So I had this really odd, you know, almost post-apocalyptic upbringing of all these things that I, I couldn't understand the meaning of them. Uh, scattered over the farm. Yeah, and you were, I mean, and, and we've talked before a little bit about, and you were quite a reader, and I imagine a, a young woman with your <laughs> amazing imagination probably made something of these things. Oh, yeah. We, um, we had a lot of play um, over and under and around everything where we would come up with different things that they were and work them into our play. There was four of us, and because we had ponies, we had lots and lots of Shetland ponies, we also always had a herd of girls with us, and then we also had foster children. So it was always a pack of children with ponies and dogs out on the back 40. Yeah, this, I mean, this sounds very familiar. In fact, it sounds a lot like the cast of characters that you've created uh, surround Tinker and Elfholm. Yeah, um, a good many of them are people that I have brushed up against, and I'm like, oh, this person is really cool. I'm going to steal them <laughs> and put them in a book. Um, so, but the whole scrapyard thing is I, I do have a fascination with scrapyards and thrift stores and flea markets. Uh, I kind of inherited it from my parents, their depression era kids. So they were always, oh, we might be able to use this. And they would take things when they went to the dump to drop off what they thought was useless. Um, one time my dad found these fluorescent shop lights at the dump. And he's like, oh, I can use these in my garage. And he put them in the back of his pickup. And then he went to visit his older brother. And his older brother saw the lights and we're like, I just took those to the dump. My parents were at a flea market and saw a woman's accordion on sale cheap, and they were like, we have four girls, we can make one of them learn how to play this. Um, so that was my Christmas present that year. Yeah. I was not happy. Oh. <laughs> Somebody's thrown out accordion? Oh, dear. Well, um, so also in the introduction you talk about, um, you talk about, how you were dissatisfied after you grew up and became a, a big reader of, um, especially of urban fantasy, how you were dissatisfied. You liked it, but it wasn't quite what you were looking for. If you had written it, you might have done it differently. Um, and, and that was sort of a genesis for Tinker as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I had been stuck in the middle of a book, my second book, and uh, I decided I would read to try to fuel the creative engines. And I picked up this urban fantasy, and there was lots of it I liked about it, but there was a lot I didn't like. And I got to the end, and I was like, this is not how I'd write it. If I wrote it, I would do this, that, and the thing. And the next thing I know, I've got 17,000 words. It's the first chapter of Tinker. Um, and just two or three days, it was like, there. Um, but I had a book on contracts, so I had to go back and work on that. But I continued to work on Tinker until I got it finished. And, and then I was like, okay, I've got a book. I've got to sell it. And um, Jim Bain bought it. And I was quite excited because I had expected it to come out with mass market. When they told me it was going to be hardcover, I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. So uh, I've been very happy with from the start. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I remember uh, that was when Tinker first came out was when I was writing the advertising copy for Bain and um, some of the flap copy. And um, 
I just remember being so excited reading. I was like, I really like this. I really like this more, more, more. And um, it was it was really cool. There's something unique about it because you found a way to blend this science fiction. It makes sense, kind of uh, plausible. Uh, the thing that comes with science fiction, you blend it into the urban fantasy, and and your characters also are doers, and and they're not victims, right? Especially Tinker. Yeah. Well, one of the things I, I didn't like about the urban fantasy and was that the fact that it kind of ignored the human curiosity. Um, we have this weird need to know. Uh, we send submarines down to the deepest level of the sea, you know, 14,000 feet, just to see what's down there. Uh, so... It always kind of bothered me that when we had these borderland kind of stories, that the humanity's like, yeah, there's another world out there. We can't be bothered. Uh, we'll stick here and they'll be over there, and we don't try to figure it out. And like, no, you'd have scientists climbing all over it trying to figure it out. So I really wanted to put in the idea that, no, humans wouldn't just, ignore it and say, that's magic, we can't figure it out. They would either try to figure out the science behind it or just record it as is, and, and then they would also try to learn magic. And that was one of the big premises of the story was that you know, the humanity would act like humanity toward it. They would do things like set up custom border guards to, you know, check people in and out. They would have a military force there guarding things. Um, I have the EIA because, you know, that's what humans would do. And we would also set up a currency and agree upon it. And, and just all around, all the little points of this is how humanity actually would work in the face of the unknown. And... Uh, yeah. That's why it ends up being science fiction. Because fantasy kind of says, oh, you can't know about it. You, you never understand. You know, why did Rumpelstiltskin want the baby? How did he change the straw into gold? That's never explored. And that's fantasy. Yeah. So the well, let's talk about Tinker herself a little bit then at the in, and the situation at the beginning, um, which is that she's in her in her scrapyard doing stuff, and her elf runs through being chased by wargs that aren't actually wargs, but <laughs> but um, she is in this setting where the the city of Philadelphia intercepts with let's just set, sort of set up the premise of the series. Um, if you will, the, for those who haven't read it yet um, and, and might want to try now that this uh, great reissue is out there. Um, the city of, not Pittsburgh, not Philadelphia, obviously, um, is, is in a strange magical relationship with, with the world of the elves. Can you fill that out a little bit? Okay. Uh, yeah, my premise is that there's multiple universes and... They're all kind of touching, but not touching. And they all basically had the same start kind of thing, so that each planet mirrors the other one. And I kind of did that because um, the two planets had to be in the same exact position for this whole thing to work out. Um, so you basically have layers of mirrored planets, each in their own universe. And magic is this waveform through all the universes, and in some places it's strong, in some places it's weak. And on Earth it's weak, but on Elfholm it's strong. And through this complex backstory, Tinker's father actually comes up with a way to tr transverse between the two universes through a um, gate in the orbit of Earth. But as a weird side effect, because he was killed before the gate was 
built. And nobody knew how to change his designs. This one fundamental flaw was left in it. Um, when the gate gets turned on and it creates its field so that starships can go through it, which is original, um, the plan. Uh, and there's a secondary side effect that nobody expected that Pittsburgh gets yanked off of Earth and put on Elfhome. And they figure out what's causing it. But the humans are kind of like, okay, yeah, Pittsburgh is a huge metropolitan area, but that's a whole different planet. And we're willing to let it get kidnapped to another planet in order for us to explore and trade and basically be humans. So how do the humans interact with this? So they, they meet this this race of beings there who are, for all intents and purposes, elves. Um, and there's magic that works there. And it's magic that works in a certain way, as as it should, um, have, has rules. Um, how do they trade? What is the interaction like? Because elves are, are, in the books, are, sometimes they're contemptuous of the humans. Um, basically, the elves had already known about Earth because they knew about magic and that there are certain points that used to be open between Earth and Elf home, and they would actually come to Earth and trade with us, which is why they're all through our legends uh, of the Fae that live underground. And they knew how humans operate. So they had lost contact with Earth back in like 1790. So they had been witnessing the whole, we show up and say, we're, we're a master race here, we're the British Empire, we're the French Empire, we claim this land even though there are people living there, and we'll buy the land off of them with trinkets and then slowly push them out. So the elves were like, okay, you've made it to our planet, but we're not going to let you do that. So they basically met any force with force and made the humans recognize them as owners of the planet, planet and they set up a UN contingency um, there to um, basically have an embassy for all the different countries of Earth that could then establish trading. And this trade back and forth, and they've, they agreed on currency exchange rates, and it's a full commerce. And, but when Philadelphia transitions over, I mean Philadelphia, I keep saying, uh, Pittsburgh transitions, um, things there... Like, for instance, uh, plants sometimes become deadly carnivorous, um, and things things don't remain the same, right? Yeah. Um, one of the things I came up with for the magic is that it kind of bumps, bumps up the natural selection process to extreme, so... They're like the black widows, which are trees, but they can walk and they eat things. And basically, if you take the Venus flytrap and just take it to the max, and, um, and they're strangler vines, which interestingly enough, I had set up that they, they mimic the leaves of the um plant they grow on. So if they're on an oak tree, they look like they grow oak-looking leaves. And it turns out there's actually a plant that does that, and I didn't realize that. But, of course, my plant grabs and eats people, so it's a little bit more than the real thing. Yeah, it could be a... <clears throat> there's um, 
there are even people that get hired to take care of little problems like that in your backyard in uh, in one of the stories in uh, in uh, Project Elfhome, I think. Um, so Tinker is herself an odd um, person in that she's she's an orphan who was born to parents that she couldn't possibly have ever met, right? Yeah. Um, another complicated backstory is explored in later books. Uh, I basically had it that his, her father had left um, genetic material in a, um, in a sperm bank in New York City. And after he was killed, her mother, who didn't know her father, took out the material and had somebody else donated an egg and had somebody else give birth to Tinker. And then she went into space. So um, after the baby was born, the surrogate mother gave Tinker to her grandfather and then went to New York City to live. So Tinker has never known her father, her biological mother, or even the, uh, the surrogate mother. Yeah, really, her closest relative is is Oil Can, right? Who's a cousin? Yeah, um, his mother was the sister of Tinker's father, and he's a kind of an orphan too. His mother was killed, and his father's in prison on Earth. So. He was also raised by the grandfather, and the two of them were kind of raised as brother and sister. And some people actually make the mistake to thinking that they're brother and sister. Um, but they didn't actually meet until Oil Ken was 10 and Tinker was 6. And in the at the start of Tinker, Tinker, she's just barely an adult, I think, right? Um yeah, she's only a few months into 18. Yeah, and she has, um, she and Oil Can, um, are, they're family to each other pretty much. Uh, they, and, and Tinker's got this scrapyard. What what does she do there? What do they do there? Well, Tinker is a child prodigy, basically. She, she's incredibly intelligent, and she was raised by a man who's probably a child prodigy himself. So he was teaching her advanced physics when she was six. Um, so when by the time she was 13, when he died, she was basically operating mentally like a, you know, a college graduate or, you know, even a doctorate kind of level of physics and calculus and everything. So she realized that normally... There's a rule that the elves set up that the UN signed into the treaty that orphans aren't allowed to stay on the planet. So to keep from being kicked off, she started a business. And she started a business that would give her access to things in making her inventions. And one of the things she invented was a hover bike, which is basically a motorcycle that can fly. Well, that's cool. And she um, she comes to, because she's so good at the... Are you still there, Wynn? Yeah. Okay. Because she's so good at the... Um, at thinking uh, about combinations of magic and, and science, um, she uh, is in a position to save uh, Wolf Who Rules when he comes through. Um, mm mm-hmm at the beginning of the story. So what happens, how does the, how does the whole series and how does, um, how does this book kick off? Um, this dude runs into the scrapyard. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, yeah, I've tried to pick out things across five books. Yeah. Um, the, the wolf, the character that she saves is Wolf Who Rolls. 
is also known by by the humans as Windwolf. Um, he's the viceroy for the elves um, to uh, for this area. So basically, he's a prince of, of uh, nobility of the elves, and he's being attacked by a third party that the humans don't know about. And when they meet, he falls in love with her. And this brings Tinker into the elf politics that, for the most part, she was leaving out of her life. Um, Long backstory. Um, It turns out that one of her ancestors was an elf who had fled elf home and came to Earth, and he brought with him the knowledge of how to do magic, and there's actually a codex, a spell book, that he had left to the family, and all his descendants have read the spell book, and Tinker's father was actually using the spell book when he invented the gate, which is the reason why nobody else could figure out what he had done, because they didn't know about magic, they didn't know about spells, uh, so he had this weird leap in logic that they couldn't follow. But Tinker has the spell book too, and she starts using it to um, create things that people don't Nobody else can figure out how to do because the elves don't know how to use technology, and the humans really don't know how to use magic. So she's in a weird, weird position that she knows both very well. Yeah, she's the she's the bridge character between these two very, very strange uh, or very much different cultures. So the 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 elves um, are immortal. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons that they have their doubts about humans. Um, and they're divided into these, uh, into these, they're divided into clans and they're divided into status levels. Um, so, um, Winwolf is a Domani, I think. Um, what are some of the, maybe just sort of explain the, uh, the elf hierarchies. Um, Okay. Way back in the past of the elf history, there was a period of time they were much like humans, where they were just, you know, tribes and different races and different um, people. But one tribe rose up and enslaved all the others, and they were the skin clan, and they would carry out experiments with their slave population um, using magic. And as I said, magic can do horrific things on evolution. And some of the experiments they did were quite horrific. And eventually the elves rose up and overthrew Skin Clan. But before they could, the Skin Clan had created very locked-in-place things like being immortal. At one time, elves weren't immortal. It was the skin clan that made them immortal. And the pointed ears were actually a marker that this person was a slave. And one of the things they did was they basically said, okay, we're going to have this group of people and they're going to be incredibly strong combat. So um, that's the Ladens, and the Ladens are usually warriors of some type. And Windwolf has a collection of them who are basically his personal guard at a lower A uh, level. And then at one point the Skin Clan had come up with the cream of the crop in terms of bodyguard, and that's the Shikaska. And those um, are a 
above anybody else. In fact, they're actually the highest rank uh, caste-wise because they're considered holy, because they're considered perfect. And they have a very set moral, you know, this is right and this is wrong. And they're actually above the law because they have this belief that if they're holy and they're perfect, then the laws made by imperfect people shouldn't control them. So they can actually kill anybody they want. But they also are so perfect, they realize that they don't see shades of gray and that might does not create right. And they serve the demana, who are like the noble class, as bodyguards, um, holy bodyguards. But if the demana step out of line, they can and will kill them. And there's a very strong sense of if you protect somebody, um, if somebody protects you, you owe them loyalty and um, duty. But in the other way around is if somebody gives you duty and loyalty, um, you have to protect them. So it's a very rigid kind of moral right and wrong. Yeah, and um, and when humans become involved, they don't understand all that's going on in all this, and can can get in some quite some hot water. Yeah, um, Tinker thinks she understands everything because, of course, her family one time was those, but uh, she really is just on the outside, and she hasn't realized all the deeper implications of it. And some of what she was told growing up isn't right. Uh, she was either purposely lied to or the person telling her um, the information didn't understand either. So Tinker is kind of blindsided by a good bit of what's going on because she's also very sure that she's the smartest person on the planet and she has it down... She has it nailed. She can't possibly be wrong, but she is. Well, she is um, also involved with, um, she becomes involved with um, this guy whose life she saves herself, whose life she saves. So she's thrust into it whether she wants to be or not because she's in a relationship with a Domani. Yeah, he basically asked her to marry him, and she doesn't understand what he's asking um, and of course, she won't admit that she doesn't understand the question. So she says yes, and he starts treating her as his wife. And at first, she doesn't catch on, but by the time she figures it all out, um, she's way too deep to get herself out of it. And actually, she's like, okay, I do love him. I do want to stick with him. Okay, I'll put up with this craziness. <laughs> yeah. And the... Uh... On the human side of things, so you've got uh, Pittsburgh, you have a, a sort of, uh, I don't know if it's a police force, you've got sort of a investigative, it's not exactly a secret police with uh, Maynard. Uh, tell us about the EIA and how humans deal with, with humans who are in Elf Home. Okay. So Pittsburgh is a city, so it has its own fire department and police department and all that. But it's also under United Nations rule. So the United Nations set up a, a branch which they call the Elf Home Interdimensional Agency, or the EIA. And Maynard is the director of it. And he had actually met Windwolf, the um, the first time Pittsburgh went to Elfhome, and the humans tried to do the human things of you know we don't know what's going on, but we've got tanks and we've got rocket launchers, and these people seem to be armed with nothing more than bows and arrows. So we'll try to round them up and lock them up and treat them, you know 
as if they're not much more than animals. And Winwolf did not take kindly to this. And it was Maynard who basically negotiated a peace. And afterwards, Winwolf said that, um, no, we're not going to... I, somebody called me. Oh, well. Um, Winwolf said, no, uh, we're not going to put up with this. And then afterwards said, uh, I want Maynard to be the director of the EIA. So Maynard is kind of a friend, but he's also very much on the side of humans. But he also knows that he's in a kind of a tenuous position because Pittsburgh goes back to Earth only 30 uh, once every 30 days, and it only stays on Earth for 24 hours. So that gives the elves plenty of time to bring in enough manpower, elf power, um, to kill every single human on the planet, uh, and then send back an empty city. So he's always trying to make sure that things run smoothly. Yeah. But he and, ends up being kind of the god of Pittsburgh. Yeah. Incurs afraid of. And he's he, and people look upon him as <laughs> as as somebody that they're a little scared of. And Maynard set the the story, uh the plot, um the task set for uh, Tinker is set by Maynard um at the beginning of the story. And this is what instigates the whole thing. He's he wants Tinker to figure out something for him oh yeah um this third party that the humans don't know about um also had been involved in a, a fight between the regular human police force uh, on one of the bridges and it was a fire a uh, gunfight and they threatened to blow up things and uh, actually picked up and tossed a Volkswagen um, Beetle off the bridge because they're very strong. And uh, they left behind this contraband that puzzles Maynard. It's high-tech something. He doesn't know what it is. So when he realizes how smart Tinker is, he takes her to where the contraband is and does this what is this stuff? Can you can you figure it out for me? And that's actually part of the big story arc. Uh, that stuff is actually going to be appearing in the next book. Yeah. So um, looking back on on the series, as you've now written it for over twenty years, I guess. Um, yeah, it's getting there. Yeah, um, at least fifteen. The what. <laughs> How, how are you feeling about this? Um, what, how has it sort of um, developed in your mind? And um, I don't know, uh, reflect back a moment for us, if you will. Maybe we can close with that. Okay. Um, writing a book is kind of a joy and a sorrow because it, it's done and it's gone and you can't change it. And there's so many things that, you know, Later down the road, you know, 15 years later, you're like, oh, it would have been so much better if I did this. But you have to be kind of satisfied that that's how you started things and that's how it's going to stay. Um, but at the same time, it's, it forces you to be clever. And you're like, okay, I said this. How can I take that and make it amazing? And so there's a trick to that, and the whole, the things that Maynard gives her. Um, you know, I knew it was going to matter in later stories, and now I'm working on the, last, the next book, and I'm thinking, oh, I can use it that way, and people will be stunned and amazed, and I'll look like a genius. Uh, but, you know, when I actually wrote it, I'm like, okay, this is um, hooks for the next plot line, but I'm not completely sure what this is for. But there's, 
Do you feel the constraints that you've placed on yourself uh, lead you to be even more creative sometimes? Oh, yeah. Sounds like that's what you're saying. Yeah. It's, it, when you come to a first, you know, a standalone book, you're like, you could do anything, and you, you really don't have to push yourself as hard. But when you have in place, you know, this has to stay there and this has to stay there, you have to get really creative to work within those um, limits. But I really, really love the world. I love the characters. Um, I, I actually can't stop writing about them, even, you know, when I know this is probably not going to make it into any book because it's just some off-scene. That's, that's what Project Alpha was was a lot of things where it's like, okay, this fits no place, but this is really fun, so I'm going to write it down. And at a certain point, I say, okay, I've got enough for a book here. Why don't I just do a collection of all the cool things I've written down over the years that doesn't fit into the main story arc of the novels? Yeah, and we've uh, enjoyed publishing those uh, on the Bain website as well. Some of those um, have been great to have. So, <clears throat> Well, the book out right now at Booksellers Everywhere is a, is a wonderful reissue of Tinker, book one in the Elf Home series by Wynne Spencer, which it, with a great new cover and uh, a wonderful introduction by Wynne. And uh, it's just uh, it's it's a great addition to uh, to the Elf Home family of, of books, we might say. Um, when thank you so much for uh, for talking to us about Tinker and about the series and about those lava flows. <laughs> okay, thank you, Tony. I really enjoyed talking with you. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. The doors to the keep were open. In the high desert, it was best to keep the air circulating. Ashok! The booming, deep voice came from inside, followed a moment later by the broad-shouldered bulk of one of his brothers. About damned time you showed up. Way to take your sweet time. Hello, Carno. Ashok outranked him, but they'd fought together, so he was used to Carno's plain-spoken ways. He was from House Utara, a land so poor that even their first caste were little better than farmers. Bad manners were to be expected from them. Good to see you too. The big protector never seemed pleased, and he wasn't about to start now. Forgive my abruptness. You can clean up later. The master's been waiting for you. Come on. The compound was too quiet. He saw no other seniors. Normally, they only had a small garrison here, but he'd never seen so few experienced protectors here. He went up the stairs, and the main chamber was just as dead. The only other living things were a couple of lazy dogs and a slave sweeping the floor. Where is everyone? 
Trouble down south. Inquisition needed some muscle. Mindaran sent most of the capital garrison. It had to be bad if they'd called up that many protectors. Macau again. Not this time. Castless uprising in the house Akershan. Cultists of the forgotten got to preaching the old religion. They even have themselves a false prophet. So some lunatic hearing voices got them all riled up and they murdered an arbiter. Can you believe it? Kano snorted. Bunch of idiots hiding in the mountains. Next thing you know, they'll be crowning some fish-eater to be their king. The witch-hunters are taking it serious, though. They say the rebels have got their hands on some powerful magic. Fortress forged, I'd wager. There were very few things more illegal than fortress alchemy. They were the last open practitioners of the old ways in Locke, but their impenetrable island kept them safe from the law and their smuggled abominations were a terrible source of corruption in the world. If it was truly that bad, then Akershan was where he would be going next. Good. Crushing uprisings was preferable to dealing with politics in the capital. At least the religious fanatics were honest. I need to speak to the master. This way. I sent a slave to make sure he's awake. Carno lumbered down the hall. He was a head taller than Ashok, twice as big around, and shaggy as a bear in winter. He was one of the few men in the order against whom Ashok actually had to work hard in order to win a sparring match. I asked to be sent to smash this uprising, you know, but I got stuck here. The castless back in my own house got uppity a few years back, murdered some of our warriors, and then Devadas slaughtered the lot of them, the lucky bastard. How is Mindarin? Bad. He wasn't known as Blunt Karno just because he preferred to fight with a hammer. Prepare yourself. His father had died when he was very young. Ashok couldn't remember a thing about the man, couldn't even picture his face. Mindarin, on the other hand, had taught him everything he knew, made him everything that he was. The swordmaster was much more of a father than the one who'd passed on his blood. Everyone dies, but Ashok didn't have to like it. They went up the stairs and stopped before a closed door. It was a sad comment that here, privacy was worth more than the cooling breeze. Ashok reached for the handle, but Karno stopped him. Wait for the slave to come out. He can't even sit up in bed on his own or clean himself. Let the master retain what dignity he has left. Ashok let go of the handle. I was unaware. Most are. He was struck down months ago. The surgeon said it was a seizure of apoplexy. There was paralysis for a time, and only recently could he speak clearly again, but his body continues to deteriorate. The heart of the mountain is the only thing sustaining him. Is there no hope for him? None. The rebels hiding in their mountain holes can pray to their false god for comfort, but for us, there's only the harsh truth that such a great man will be remembered. I'll leave you to your business. Carno stomped back toward the stairs, but paused before going down. Whatever reason Mandarin called for you, whatever your assignment may be, I know you're the right choice. You are the best of us. He bowed. He cared little for praise, but coming from one as honest as Karno, the words actually meant something. Ashok returned the bow. By the time he looked up, Karno was gone. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And an explanation for the lyrics. Hey Jude, the movement you need is on your shoulder. And it's based on a novel by a man named Lear. What do those mean? Plus thanks, elven magic plaudits that sparkle. And praise for when no stranger to volcano Spencer author of Tinker. 
Please join us next time here at the Hammering Art of Science Fiction and Fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.